Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Other times you need a deeper understanding of what's going on. The Rundown Podcast has all of that, and it's Chicago-based, so you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Justin Kaufman, and this is WBEC's Weekly News Roundup. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and deep inside the biggest city and state stories of the week. Wisconsin prosecutors are accusing an Illinois 17-year-old of shooting three people in Kenosha during protests over the police shooting of Jacob Blake. Details remain murky about what exactly transpired on Sunday night. What compelled Kenosha police officer Rustin Shevsky to shoot seven times? A high-ranking official with the Chicago Public Schools has been charged with lying to the FBI. Chicago is moving forward with a plan to build a world-class casino and entertainment value. This is triggered by what happened to Jacob Blake. But what we're protesting is that black people should be treated the same as white people. It's really that simple. As always, we pulled in a couple of Chicago's best journalists to take us through these stories and more. WTTW co-anchor and correspondent and host of Chicago Tonight, Black Voices, Brandis Friedman, and WBEC investigative reporter Dan Mialopoulos. Dan, let me start with you. You've been covering the events in Kenosha all week. Your reaction to this story that's gone from a Chicago story to a global story. Right. Um, obviously, it became a global story when the police officer on, on Sunday uh, shot Jacob Blake in the back. Uh, some more details have dribbled out. There's been a suggestion by the authorities there that he had a knife in the car, uh, but clearly a very graphic uh, and disturbing video of uh, someone shot in the back uh, repeatedly when uh, there was uh, no imminent danger uh, to the officers, but that's under investigation. It sparks protests in Kenosha, just 60 miles north of us. And on the third day of those protests, uh, late on Tuesday night, someone who uh, said that they went there as a militia member, as a sort of vigilante uh, to protect properties there, ends up uh, shooting two people, actually shooting three people, two of them fatally. So the reverberations uh, obviously are far beyond Kenosha and uh, the Chicago area, as the shooter was, by the way, uh, a 17-year-old from Antioch in uh, Lake County, Illinois. Brandis, this started out as a story about police violence, and now it's become something far beyond that. I was just stunned that Kyle Rittenhouse was able to make it, you know, 34 minutes um, away, because I looked on the map, too, to be sure, but Mm -hmm. he was able to make it from Kenosha uh, to Antioch a young man with a gun that he is not legally old enough to have. And I'm not sure, is that particular gun, it's like owner ownership or possession of that, is that legal? I don't know. Um, apparently it is because somebody owned it and, and he got it. But I was just stunned that he was able to make it that far and was able to walk around and there are videos mm-hmm. of him talking mm-hmm. to someone um, on social media. So all of this surprised me and a lot of folks who are protesting in the streets are able to say, this is the privilege we are talking about. This is the privilege that a young white man with a large white gun has um, that some folks think Jacob Blake was not afforded. Yeah. Dan, that's something that that even there are reports that uh, protesters were pointing out him as the shooter to police who were going by and they didn't pay attention to it. Uh, And we had talked yesterday just about how the relationship between militia that were up in Kenosha at the time right. and the Kenosha police. Yeah, there's a group called the Kenosha Guard. We don't know if uh, 
Kyle was part of that group or not, um, and, and I don't know that there's any sort of card-carrying membership. These are groups that are going on Facebook and putting out a call to arms for, quote, patriots to show up and patrol the city, and they're offering their assistance, so to speak, uh, to the police, saying that the police are outnumbered and that the, the legal authorities have been unable uh, to uh, protect businesses uh, from looters. Well, you know, the police are saying there's no way in H-E double hockey sticks that they are going to deputize people okay. randomly who are showing up, in some cases, from out of state. And in the case of Kyle Rittenhouse, he's a 17-year-old that's on video saying he sees himself as a militia member and he sees himself as basically having police authority. Sure. Having said all that about the police refusing to deputize them, there's a lot of video out there that shows that the police were perfectly appreciative of these vigilantes showing up and certainly tolerant of them. And in the case of Kyle Rittenhouse, after he shoots uh, three people, allegedly, there's video of him walking down the street and people yelling to police, this is the shooter, and the police go past him. Now, did they go past him because they didn't hear what people were yelling at them, as the police brass up there is suggesting? Or did they go past him because they have a practice of letting people who show up and, and effectively call themselves vigilantes, letting them operate? And that's one conclusion that I think you can logically come to and you can find very offensive. The fact that we are considering the use of the word deputize, I didn't even know that was an option in 2020, because I, I think about like the stories that, you know, when we all learned about what happened at Selma, didn't Bull Connor deputize, and I put that in quotations because I just find it fascinating, but didn't he deputize a lot of folks to form the mob that met the Selma marchers as they were coming yeah. over the bridge that led to what we all know today is Bloody Sunday, and the fact that we are talking about it again all these years later, now obviously the sheriff there said Obviously, I'm not deputizing anybody. I wouldn't do that. But the fact that that's in the discussion today surprises me. Second Amendment advocates that think that that's exactly why the Constitution was written that way. It's never been the practice in our country for more than 200 years. It's, in fact, I'm sure, illegal for people to, to appoint themselves effectively as police. But that's what they're talking about, not far outside of our city here. I, I haven't seen it in Chicago itself or in the Chicago area very much, but this kid from Antioch, after being in a police cadet program, thought that he could effectively appoint himself as a police officer uh, and go into a neighboring state with a weapon that, no, he was not uh, allegedly uh, able to use, and I think as a 17-year-old would not have been able uh, to have that weapon. This was an AR-15-like assault weapon, and uh, three people were shot, one very, very seriously, and two are dead you know, as a result of that environment existing there. It, it just adds so much turmoil and so much chaos to a story that already had a lot of it. And what's lost in the shuffle is, uh, and, and back to the, the reason that this all began, was a police shooting on Sunday that showed an officer essentially following Jacob Blake to his, as he walked away from them and essentially defied some order, there's no sound, uh, d guns drawn, uh, around to the car, as he gets into his car, shoots him in the back seven times. That video was seen by not just uh, the people who, uh, not just our listeners and people here, but all around the world. And it has sparked something that, that has been a, a continuing thread throughout this summer, which is police violence, racial justice, social justice, Brandis. This is essentially the core issue that has been played out in the summer of 2020. And it just happened once again in front of everybody's eyes. Yeah. And I mean, and again, it's, 
I think part of the reason we are where we are right now with regard to uh, Kyle Rittenhouse and what happened is because of the alleged outside agitators who set fire to a car dealership in Kenosha and any looting that happens. And sometimes, sometimes I, I, I believe that there are outside agitators mm-hmm. like just just tearing it up, right, and, and taking advantage of the opportunity to do that. At the same time, some of the folks in the streets, peaceful as they may be, they are angry because we keep having these conversations, which I think surprises all of us to the point where I'm really at a loss for words because yeah. I, it, it feels like a hopeless situation. I, I don't know. It's frustrating, and it is sad and tragic, and I, I, I don't know what to do. Yeah, and, and Dan, Chip was on earlier, and he talked about the victims of the shooting of Kyle Rittenhouse, and I think this hasn't been talked about enough. One of the victims uh, from Kenosha, another victim from Silver Lake, which is just uh, west of Kenosha, uh, West Alice, which is a suburb of Milwaukee. For all of the talk right. of outside agitators, the people who are the victims of Kyle Rittenhouse's shootings were all local. Yes, um, I think um, there are particular uh, circumstances in all the cities, including ours, uh, where um, these are national issues, but when these things um, happen that spark uh, the demonstrations, uh, they're coming in an environment where there are pro- possibly long-standing problems between uh, the community and the police. And I think in the case of Kenosha, you have a, a powder keg there that is also close by to some rural areas where there are big Second Amendment advocates, and um, now they're trying to interject themselves or to uh, c- clash with the protesters, as was the case on Tuesday night, Uh, some distance away from where the protesters were dispersed. And then ultimately you have people conflating the looters and the protesters. The peaceful protesters and the ones that are committing property crimes are being uh, mixed up in the eyes of many and uh, deflecting from the root uh, problem that that sparked the demonstrations in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Brandis, the, the fallout from this has been so extreme, including professional athletes who have boycotted or protest or, or, or if, uh, went on strike or works out, whatever the word might be. They didn't right. play. The NBA led the charge. The Milwaukee Bucks uh, sat out a playoff game on Wednesday night. And, I mean, what, a, what an amazing moment to watch sports, not just the NBA, but follow suit with, the, with MLB and uh, soccer and WNBA and the NFL that players are stepping up and using this platform. A, a huge story, historic moment in sports. I was really moved by that. You know, I like sports uh, enough. <laughs> I don't love them. I'm not a huge fan of most teams. I've got a couple of my favorites, but I was, I was moved by, like, the WNBA uh, players, for example, with Black Lives Matter T-shirts and bullet holes um, or images. Sorry, I, I don't want to say bullet holes, but, like, right. uh, red dots, basically, on the back of their T-shirts, um, seven of them to represent the seven times that Jacob Blake was shot. Um, and to see it happen across the sports world, this almost never happens in unity the way it did. I think they should be proud of themselves. But also take note, this is what peaceful protest looks like. And when Colin Kaepernick did it, he was kind of alone. And the vice president left a football game when Colin Kaepernick did that. And this week we heard during the RNC folks saying that they are disrespecting the flag and the military. They've got their reasons to make their points. But I think the, the athletes are trying to demonstrate this is what peaceful protest looks like. Yeah. And, Dan, one story that's close to Chicagoans' hearts is Brian Urlacher, who came out against the, the NBA players Dan Weiderer had an awesome story in the, the Chicago Tribune, very thoughtful about what that means, you know, to be, if, if will Erlocker be welcome at Hallis Hall to be calling out athletes who are, who are making this, uh, this moment right now. 
I mean, and it's a small story to this whole thing, but for Chicagoans, it means a lot uh, for Brian Urlacher to to come out and and have such a stark political view of what's happening. Brian Urlacher has already uh, gotten some feedback, very negative, from uh, Matt Forte, for instance, who's another uh, Bears player of of his vintage, I think. And um, also a lot of fans say they're disappointed, uh, both in uh, Urlacher and Mike Ditka, you know, two sort of blue-collar, brawny legends of this uh, franchise that has, you know, just that sort of aura over uh, the decades, over the past century, really. And uh, a lot of disappointment from some of their teammates and from a lot of their fans uh, to uh, to see uh, Brian Urlacher, for instance, expressing uh, sympathy for Kyle Rittenhouse, which apparently is, is widespread among uh, certain uh, right-wing uh, commentators uh, like Ann Coulter and uh, Tucker Carlson have, have defended Kyle Rittenhouse. And, you know, he's going to get his day in court, but Brian Urlacher apparently already uh, feels that he's uh, – not guilty, and uh, that's that's a really uh, bad position, I think, for him to be in uh, mm-hmm. with regard to his popularity in the Chicago area and with his former teammates, um, many of whom were African American. Yep. Okay, Kenosha clearly dominated the headlines, but there are plenty of other important stories this week that we need to talk about. The Republican National Convention kicked off today, and for President Trump, who comes into the week trailing by double digits in the polls, it's a chance to reset the debate. Money for teachers! The Board of Education has spoken and the votes are in. School resource officers That's or certainly SROs a lot to unpack. Again, my guest today, WBEC's Dan Mialopoulos and WTTW's Brandis Friedman. Brandis, I want to get your reaction to the messaging we saw and heard from the GOP convention. Part of me thinks, okay, it's great. You guys want to try and have a little bit of in-person because I think that really sort of brings the energy for the convention and for the people that are there and who are attending. I've never covered one in person, but this is what I'm hearing from the folks that we've talked to who are used to going to conventions. At the same time, I think they've tried to limit their audience size, but with every live event, it got just a little bit bigger and then a little bit bigger. And we're also seeing the president and his, you know, the campaign really kind of shattering the norm of not doing all of this from the White House. Then also on Wednesday and Thursday, you saw the the president and the first lady sort of working the rope line and saying hello to folks. I mean, it seems like the distance they were keeping was more about security than uh, health and safety. I'm afraid for the folks who were there and who weren't masked, because I, I think the, the research has shown us that this stuff can get passed without that, without yeah. masking. And, and so I'm, I'm fearful that folks may be sick. And Dan, there there's so much made about that, about uh, just the... And... Know it from covering politics. There, there is a distinction. There is a there is a law in the books that says that you cannot uh, you do state business and campaign time. If you're in Chicago, you know that very well. That that's been right. what we've been dealing with in and what is the at the epicenter of the Chicago way. What do you take of this? Because the Republicans I had on the show this week said, "Hey, it's unprecedented times, man. We weren't going to do this if it were, if we were all going to meet in Charlotte, but we can't now. So this is the the president doing stuff to save money for the taxpayers. I think that's what Congressman Hood said to me." What's your take on on the way that they blurred that line? They didn't blur that line. They obliterated it. They crossed it very obviously, uh, and I'm stunned that there are no consequences for that. I think it's a fundamental issue of government ethics, and sometimes people come from business and they say, I'm bringing a new approach. I'm going to operate a government-like business. Well, there's some things in government 
that you need to understand that. And one of them is that you don't do politics on the taxpayer's dime. You don't do politics with the resources of the public. There's a very, very uh, sharp distinction that has to be drawn. Every civil servant, even in this utterly corrupt state, Justin, knows that they cannot be using their phones or their email, much less the buildings of City Hall or the county, mm-hmm. to engage in politics. That has to be on their own time and in their own place. And maybe they can't do it in person here. They can't do it in person there because of COVID-19, but they can't do it in the White House. You can't use the people's house for one party or the other. And we've seen that happen with Democrats and Republicans over the years in, in Illinois, more, more often with Democrats, where they've, where they've violated that. And they've been punished in some cases very severely for that. And I think that it was just uh, abominable that um, you had a situation where the White House is used as a backdrop for a political convention. Well, the, the president mentioned Chicago twice last night. And it was interesting. And he also seemed to, to go out of his way. Uh, he didn't talk about Jacob Blake, but he talked about law and order. I want to play a clip that will set up our, our next part here. The Republican Party condemns the rioting, looting, arson, and violence we have seen in Democrat-run cities all, like Kenosha, Minneapolis, Portland, Chicago, and New York, and many others. This problem could easily be fixed if they wanted to. Just call. We're ready to go in. We'll take care of your problem in a matter of hours. Just call. Brandis, first of all, the feds are already here. It was Operation Legend. That tone, that idea that just call and we'll take care of it. What, what, what does that mean uh, from, the, from the head of state, the, the, the commander in chief of the United States of America? I am dying to know exactly what he means, because before we learned the specifics of what Operation Legend was that would be coming to Chicago, we were hearing about what was happening in Portland and allegedly, I don't know what to call them, but folks in unmarked vans, uh, sort of federal agents, just kind of picking people up. Um, And we didn't really know who was taking them and where they were going and why these folks were being picked up. I'm terrified of what that means. Is he going to, like, federalize the National Guard? Is he sending in federal troops? Because, as you said, federal agents are already Mm -hmm. here. So I don't know what it is the president could do outside of what he's already doing or something far more extreme that I don't think anybody in Chicago or Illinois is going to be a big fan of. There are reports that that's happening in Kenosha yesterday also with unmarked vehicles and federal agents uh, picking people up. And again, not something we've seen a lot in the United States. And well, and the other thing that you mentioned, Justin, is, you know, all this week we've heard from the RNC, they've been saying in Joe Biden's America, you won't be safe. But it's happening right now in, quote unquote, Donald Trump's America. And it has been happening for the entire summer. And, you know, we heard Joe Biden the other day making the rounds on cable TV news. And then Kamala Harris made a speech. And I'm surprised that neither of them made that case, that it is happening right now uh, in Donald Trump's America and trying to sort of shift it back on uh, to the Republican Party. Uh, You only heard Joe Biden say that, you know, he thinks Donald Trump and the Republican Party are rooting for more violence because it would hurt the Democrats. Let's move on to the next topic. Will and Kankakee counties have been set back a phase in the state's reopening plan because of high COVID-19 rates. Dan, I mean, this, this is something that is just so difficult for business owners. There are no indoor restaurants. Uh, groups of people are going to be limited. This is the roller coaster that we were told was going to happen when COVID-19 became a part of our daily lives. 
Well, it's what happens when you have a patchwork uh, response across the country. You had some of the most severe restrictions statewide here uh, near the beginning, uh, and uh, people became impatient with it. Some people did, at least, and they wanted distinctions between different regions of the country. The suburbs, the exurbs, especially of the Chicago area, didn't want to be treated the same way as Chicago. And so as things have improved in Chicago uh, and in some other parts of, uh, of Cook County, for instance, uh, you now have uh, places that felt that they were almost going to be immune, uh, now having high positivity rates, a high percentage of the tests coming back positive. Certainly I would consider uh, the regions that you just mentioned uh, to be a largely exurban regions, you know, 50 miles or so uh, from downtown, uh, but still pretty densely populated. And it's really tough for the businesses, I understand. And it's going to be even tougher, though, if these problems persist into the winter and they're not able to serve people in outdoor areas due to the weather. You know, we were hoping that we would be able to tamp this down uh, once and for good, as some European and Asian countries and others have done. And instead, uh, we're in a bit of a roller coaster of, you know, it got better and now it's getting worse. Here it's getting better. There it's getting worse. All right, let's switch gears and do a little rapid fire. Dan, what do you make of the city budget and the huge deficit Mayor Lightfoot is looking at? I think it's going to be huge. It was probably going to be very big like it was last year, even without the pandemic. Uh, You throw in the pandemic and everything that I'm hearing from uh, some people close to the mayor is, uh, yeah, I mean, I I don't want to throw a number out there. I haven't heard a specific number yet, but certainly it's going to be in the hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe even, uh, dare I say, uh, a billion dollars with a budget of whatever they present, maybe eight, nine billion dollars. That's a big hole. And are they going to be able to patch it like they did last year with some one-time fixes and some uh, nickel and dime uh, measures? I don't think so. You know, they avoided property tax increases last year with uh, Lightfoot's first budget. And I think that will be a big question. Will they be able to avoid that again? Dan, take a stab at the uh, Chicago Casino and then we'll wrap up. Yeah, what we're having with the Chicago Casino, Justin, is a situation where it might finally Uh, come to pass after many, many years, decades, really, of uh, multiple mayors uh, pursuing that as as a solution or one of the major solutions to the city's budget problems. Uh, I I don't know that it will be a panacea, but, you know, what we've seen here in Illinois, first the big casino was out in Elgin, and people had to go from Chicago all the way out to Elgin, you know, 40 miles from downtown. Then the biggest casino in the state was uh, Rivers Casino in Des Plaines. Uh, now, finally, if you have a city casino and it's close to downtown, uh, they're saying that that might make three times as much hmm. as the Rivers Casino in Des Plaines. So huge stakes, uh, no pun intended, high hopes, uh, but the devil is in the details, and we still right. don't know uh, what the proposals are that are going to come forward or the location of that. How do you build a fruition. casino in a pandemic? And that, I think at the end of the day, even talking, I mean, obviously it's going to be years out, but it's like that's the part that I think Chicagoans are like, you know, they're fish to fry right now. Well, we'll see what the, the actual marketplace comes back with, too, you know. But I think the long-term possibilities of, of profit, both from private and public perspectives, are so great that there is going to be interest and people will want to maneuver but, yes, yeah, certainly things that involve a lot of people getting together, like, say, cruise ships or casinos, 
are right now facing a, a very uncertain future. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's it for the Friday News Roundup. Thanks to our panel today, WBEZ's Dan Mihalopoulos and Brandis Friedman, who we lost, but she did such a great job today from WTTW. Watch Chicago Tonight, Monday through Thursday, and also uh, Chicago, uh, Chicago Tonight Black Voices, which she will be hosting coming up here in the early part of September. Uh, thanks, Dan, for joining us, and Brandis as well. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Justin. <laughs> She's back. <laughs> And that's Reset's Friday News Roundup from WBEZ. I hope that was a helpful way for you to get through the week's biggest stories. What'd you like? What would you change? Drop us a line at reset at wbez.org. I'm Justin Kaufman. Thanks for listening. Be safe this weekend, and we'll catch you back here Monday for more Reset from Chicago's NPR News Station 91.5 WBEZ. If you need a break from the news, WBEZ's Nerd App Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club. Listen to Nerd App wherever you get your podcasts.